Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but now you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for me for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit uh, that increases to your credit. Uh, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I hope you enjoyed that, because that's our last time with the Philippians. Wow, sweetie, they loved it. It's my, oh, there'll be another beat. There's always more beats. She's the uh, Pharrell of her generation. She always comes with the sick new beats. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, just want to say one other thing. In addition to Father's Day, it's Juneteenth is actually today. Um, it was observed on Friday and would really encourage you. Uh, it's a federal holiday now uh, to know your history. Uh, fascinating holiday in that it celebrates uh, the emancipation of the slaves. There's this um, as awful, as wicked, as um, complex as the legacy of slavery is in this country. Even the holiday itself has embedded in it some of that. Uh, the story, right, goes that um, two years after the, the Civil War has basically come to a conclusion, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, a group of Union troops come into Galveston, Texas, and find there's still enslaved peoples there. And they're sort of like, whoa, 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 like, this has been, this is over. Like, you, you are free. And, um, in two years in chains after legally for every single reason these people should have been free, um, they're finally free. And that's been celebrated for, for centuries among our African-American brothers and sisters in this nation. Uh, and over the last couple of years, it's gained ascendancy, I think rightfully so, as something that uh, is part of what we acknowledge as, as the legacy of our nation. And so um, 
just wanted to acknowledge that. I think it's an important thing for us, for a community like ours, a multi-ethnic community like ours, to know, to celebrate, uh, to acknowledge. And so happy Juneteenth. Um, and with that, uh, we do head into the very last passage here in Philippians. It's a long one. Uh, there's a couple different things going on. I want to take this in kind of three sections, uh, which if you're looking at a physical Bible, kind of work out to the three paragraphs that at least are in my Bible. Uh, the paragraph from 10 to 13, then there's one from 14 to 20, and then 21 to 23. We're going to call these three sections um, understanding true contentment will be the first one. Um, generosity in the kingdom of God, or generosity as citizens of God's kingdom, and then the last one uh, I'm going to call, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to, I'm going to call it one final flex. That's what I'm going to call it for the kids among us. You guys know what a flex is. Um, one final flex. There you go. So true contentment. This last little bit of Philippians, I don't know if you've noticed it as we've been preaching through it, but as all of these, if you've been around church, if you've been around the Bible, a little bit. It has all these very memorable sections to it, all these memorable little memorizable lines and all that stuff. And this one is, is no exception to that, especially this first paragraph here. So the Apostle Paul, he's coming to the end of this letter to this church in this Roman colony, right? We started this whole series talking about how most of what Paul is doing in writing to these people is he's redefining for them what, what the good life is. He's, he's showing them what faithfulness to the gospel, to this good news of what Jesus has done, which is in direct contrast to the good news of the Roman Empire that says might makes right, life is about honor, step on the person you know, underneath you in order to gain your own. No, it turns that upside down and says, no, life is actually about going low, becoming a servant, um, because we've seen what ultimate reality is, which is Jesus. And so uh, in chapter 2, we said that there's this beating heart of the letter, this beautiful hymn that either Paul writes or he borrows from elsewhere that speaks of Jesus, who is in very nature God. He was one with God. And because he was God, as we talked about, who is God? He shows us who God is. God is one who humbles himself, who makes himself nothing. He puts on the form of a servant and becomes obedient to the point of death it's itself even death on a cross, even a shameful death, right? He's, he's putting all of these things on his head, and he's saying, this is how you should live. The world is upside down, so living the way you should live feels like you're walking on your hands sometimes. It's just the way it is. But he encouraged them and says, look, all of this is moving toward when, when what Jesus did on the cross is applied to the four corners of the universe. You want to be there on that day. You want to make it to that day, and you want to be found faithful on that day. But in telling this very different story, a lot of the time what Paul is doing is he's picking up on themes from their surrounding culture. And, and he's kind of doing what Jesus does. Part of Jesus' teaching, you might remember this, if, uh, again, if, if you're familiar with the Gospels, is part of Jesus' teaching is he says things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So he's kind of taking things that are very familiar to them, and he's putting kind of not his own spin on it, but he's saying, in light of who I am, you're going to see this differently from now on. That's what this first paragraph is. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. So he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. This is a church, as, as you'll see in just a second, who has supported Paul throughout his ministry. 
And he's saying, look, it had been a while. He actually credits that not, not to them doing anything wrong. He just says, you didn't have a chance to love and serve me. But now that you have, oh, it's been so good. And I'm sitting here in prison. Remember that he's in prison. I'm sitting here in prison, and I'm rejoicing. You have brought a smile to my face. You have brought joy to my heart because he actually uses this beautiful word that you have revived your concern for me. It's actually the word for the blossoming of a flower. He says, it's been like winter in my heart. It's been like winter for me emotionally. And man, you guys coming alongside of me, it's like a flower blooming. And it's led to rejoicing in me. Have you ever had someone come alongside you in a really difficult season and it feels like a little pinprick of spring. It feels like a little bit of water on your tongue in a parched place. That's what he's talking about here. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. There it is. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. First thing to note here is he's talking about contentment, right? That's, that's the word that kind of jumps off the page at us. In verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Then in the next verse, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And it seems like the secret there is the secret to how to be content. This word contentment, it's a familiar word to us, but especially in the context that he's writing to, actually had a very, had a very kind of philosophical buzz to it. This was a word that was talked about quite often. The word itself literally means, like in, in its literal, how you piece the word together, it literally means self-sufficiency. And it was a virtue at that time. It was one of these things that among many other things that, that the Romans would say were, were virtues and things to be pursued and, and the mark of, of, a, of a true human being, contentment was one of them. And there was a particular school of philosophy that really held this up as its highest high standard. Any, any history of philosophy buffs among us? Does anybody know what that might be? Not the Epicureans, good guess though. What do you got? Come on, somebody knows. Take a chance. You're allowed to talk in church. It's okay. We're all friends here. Anybody? Yeah, Stokes. Good. Kieran Lenahan, ladies and gentlemen. That's your, that's your champion. Behold your champion. Um, the Stoics. The Stoics. What's interesting about the Stoics, so the Stoics, uh, you probably have heard that word, right? Stoicism. What image comes to mind? Someone who's very calm, right, under, under all circumstances. Someone who mm, has, has found a way to sort of bear up under difficult circumstances. This is actually a philosophical school. That's where that word comes from. It's philosophical school at that time. Uh, a worldview, a way of being in the world. What's interesting about Stoicism is it's actually weirdly on the rise right now. Um, especially sort of a generation underneath me. There's a website, in fact, called The Daily Stoic. That's one of the most visited websites daily in the world. And it's uh, this American guy basically reviving a lot of Stoic philosophy and applying it to, kind of applying it to the overall like wellness, achievement, efficiency thing that's big uh, in, in certain circles of our culture right now. And so this is not just some ancient curiosity. What the Stoics taught 
was basically, right, the, was contentment, was self-sufficiency, was the idea that you can, you can so be in control of your inner desires that circumstances no longer dictate how you navigate the world. You can, you can just kind of hold within yourself the, the emotional fortitude to endure come what may. Which sounds pretty good, right, as, as far as it goes. And what Paul says here sounds very similar to that, right? It sounds like he's like, yeah, the Stoics are kind of on to something. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You read that sentence out of context, and you're like, oh, he's a Stoic. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every and every in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Cool little uh, thing that he's also doing here is this phrase, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. See it there? He's not talking about like 20 years ago when the secret was a thing, manifesting your, your reality, vision boards, etc. Um, it's actually this, this term at that time for mystical religions that would initiate people into like greater insights the more you advance in that religion, which kind of sounds like what? Who's, yeah, who's watching their Hulu documentaries, right? Like kind of sounds like Scientology. It's kind of the Scientology of its day. And he's like, I've done that. I've learned the deeper secret. I've been initiated into how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he's picking up all kinds of language. Do you see what he's doing, right? Jalen uh, preached a couple weeks ago on that uh, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever. And he's like, these are all things that were talked about in that culture. He's just completely absorbing them into this distinctly Christian worldview and saying, look, yeah, these things are all great insofar as you see them through a gospel lens. You see them through a Jesus lens. It's, it's what he's doing here, like spoiler alert. He's saying, yeah, like contentment is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Yeah, um, figuring out how to be someone who can endure in the midst of having a lot. And really what he's talking about here, it's really irreducibly the case. What he's primarily talking about here is financial. Is he saying, I, I've been really, really poor and I've had plenty. I, I've, I've you know, known where my next meal was coming from, not been worried about the bills, and I've been in the other place. And he says, uh, I'm content. I've learned how to be content. Uh, I love that he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. That knowing there is experiential. He's not saying this, this, isn't, this isn't something that you can intellectually get. This is something that life teaches you. And the older saints among us, I can almost guarantee, would say amen to this, right? Because you can have all the head knowledge in the world, but until you go through some stuff, your contentment is only so strong, is only so protected. But you go through some stuff, and you learn what it looks like to endure that. And suddenly, your contentment has, has a strength, has a fortitude, has a resilience to it. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. So how is he different, though, than the Stoics? I think that there's three main things, I would say, um, that are different here. One is... The story that Paul believes himself to be living in could not be more different than the story that the Stoics believe themselves to be living in. So Stoics believed, essentially, that the world was governed by fate, capital F. You can even pluralize it. That the world was run by the fates. 
And fate is fickle, to say the least, because fate, fate doesn't really have a design. Fate just kind of does what fate does. If you, if, if you know your mythology, fate's kind of all over the place. Fate can be chaotic sometimes. Fate can have meaning and purpose sometimes, which is to say that the universe is basically operating without intention. It just kind of is what it is, and it's going. And things are slamming into each other, and people are coming in contact with each other in various ways. And just history is how all of that works itself out, however chaotic. If you can look back and see some purpose, good for you. But fate is fate. What it means to be a person, then, is to try and find a way to not be battered back and forth by the fates. To not just find yourself every day being reactive to blow after blow of what randomness throws at you. You've got to become strong. You've got to become a strong person who, whether it's coming from the right side or the left side, you can endure it, right? Do you see how this is not so far from the way that a lot of us believe we need to be in this world, right? Like, it's Father's Day. It is all too cliche, the image of the stoic American father who's unbothered by anything, who has never shown emotion of any kind in his whole life, who is able to endure no matter what, right? Who got up at five and came home at seven and never complained once, right? Like this, this is an ideal that we have. And I think that the Apostle Paul would say there's good in that, but there's also something really impoverished in that because that's not the story you're living in. Certainly not if you're a child of God. See, because the story that Paul is living in actually has an author behind it has meaning and intention behind it. And though life can absolutely feel chaotic, though life can feel like you never know which way it's coming from, there is a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. I love the image that the Bible gives us of this in the, the most famous book about why is the world the way it is? Why is there such suffering in the world? The, the Old Testament book of Job where God says, yeah, look, man, the world feels like two beasts. He talks about these two beasts, Leviathan and Behemoth. He's like, these things are wild, man. They take their swipes. They sound like the fates of ancient mythology. And they kind of do their thing. And they're vicious and they're cruel. And then God says, but that doesn't mean that they're not under my control. He says, I can put a bit in those beasts' mouth and turn it the way that I want to. I can take the worst things in your story and actually bring meaning and even goodness to them and through them. God says, I'm never out completely out of control, though you might experience it that way. Therefore, what it means to be human is not to guard yourself from that, but to participate with me in that, to be, as one commentator calls it, a passionate participant in a divinely ordered drama, to be a passionate participant in a divinely ordered drama. See how different it is to wake up every day either believing what's coming at you is randomness or believing that there's one behind it. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that the one behind it has revealed himself in Jesus, and therefore we know what he's like. We know what his posture toward us is. And it's not apathy, and it's not anger. It's goodness, it's love, it's grace, it's mercy. That's what stands behind the universe in all of its complexity. In all the complexity of your story, the world, the universe, you, 
Your story, it's not just hurtling through space randomly, waiting to collide into its next tragedy. Though life is tragic. Which leads to the second point, which is that the Stoic ideal was to quiet all of your emotions and to kind of be a one-note person. You would kind of live, if you picture your emotional life as this up and down, a Stoic wanted to live about here. And counter to the way that a lot of us approach faith, that's not the ideal of faith. Faith actually calls us to passionately engage this world, to have emotions, to be an emotional being. God gave you your emotions. They're good. Are you to be led by them? Are they ultimate reality? No. But are they to be squashed as though life isn't full of joys that can make you cry and tragedies that can do the same for completely different reasons? Right? The Bible commands us to emote. It says things like even in Philippians, rejoice, rejoice greatly. That's not, I'm rejoicing. I just don't want to get too high, right? It also says weep and mourn. It even says be angry. It even says to hate certain things. These are emotional words, right? To bottle all that up and say, I'm really sad, right? Is just as strange as saying, I'm rejoicing, right? No, the Christian ideal, a human being fully alive, is a human being who at times is throwing their head back in laughter and uproariously enjoying the company of what's good in this world and the gracious gifts of God. It's also someone who sometimes is on their knees with a broken heart wailing for what they're up against, for what those they love are up against. How do I know that? Because the human being who is fully alive, that's who he was. He walked among us. His name was Jesus. And he was called a drunkard because he loved to party. <laughs> he loved to hang with his people, right? He loved a good wedding. He loved a good reception, right? Like he was the first guy out on the floor for whatever, you know, the new dance, right? Like that's what I pictured Jesus was. He wasn't, he wasn't in the corner opining philosophically at these weddings. You don't get called a drunkard for that. You get called a wallflower, right? That's who he was. He enjoyed the good and gracious gifts. He was also brokenhearted for this world. He wept and he was angry. And when the right thing caused him to be angry, we saw it. Believe me, we saw it. He flipped over tables, right? That's, that's not stoicism. That's, that's something altogether different. Because the third thing that's different about this contentment and the contentment of the Stoics is, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So is it self-sufficiency, Paul, or is it this? Paul's answer is, yeah, it's this. You just had to keep coming with me, right? He's like, yeah, contentment. Yeah, we'll take that word that by the world standards means self-sufficiently. You find this within yourself. You find this internal fortitude and resilience within yourself. He says, good luck trying. He says, for me, I found something outside of me that actually strengthens me and provides what I can't produce inwardly. He says, that's how I get through it. Let's talk about this verse for a second. Because the first thing that I think of when I see this verse, even just the reference, Philippians 4.13, first thing I think of, I don't know about you, but is some Tebow eye black. 
Remember Tebow? Remember Tim Tebow? Remember when that was a thing? <laughs> Tim Tebow. Where are you, Tim? Um, right, he put eye black on and he'd put a verse. And a lot of times it was this verse. Philippians 4, 13, right? And, and what do most athletes especially, but what do most people mean by Philippians 4, 13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, I can, it's like, first of all, Tim, you can run through a brick wall because you look like that. Like, I don't know if that has much to do with your distinctly Christian worldview, because this guy is not running through what that guy can run through, right? But what, what we normally mean by I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is the thing that I already have decided I need to do and want to do for my good and joy, Jesus can be my little upgrade package in that and help me get there. And because I have Jesus, the thing that me and my opponent both want to do, I have the Jesus upgrade, so let's be real, I'm probably going to be the one. Which I remember as a very little kid thinking like, but what if there's equal numbers of Christians on both teams? Like, how does that work out? Because I 100% believe like, I literally, I was a 49ers fan growing up, forgive me, I was a sellout. And um, I'm saying that to some of the Niners fans who are here. Um, and it always bothered me because I would get like these Christian athletes. I don't know if any of you grew up in church, but I grew up in church. And I used to get these Christian athlete magazines, Sports Spectrum. Any Sports Spectrum? Yes, Rich Lynn. That's why you're an elder. See? It's that good youth discipleship. So I would get this thing and I would scour it because it was all these Christian athletes, right? Like whoever had kind of outed themselves last month, they'd be like, oh, we think that he's, because he said whatever at a press conference. It always bothered me that there weren't many 49ers in there. And then there were certain teams, like I remember back in the day, like the Cowboys, I mean, they played in Dallas, so everybody's Christian in Dallas. And I'd be like, oh no, like we're definitely outnumbered. It's going to be more. Anyway, this was my view. Um, that's how this verse is used, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, this, oh, this just delights my heart as someone who loves to teach Bible, right? Like, this is classic taking something out of context, right? That is not what this verse is saying. Do you get that that's what I'm getting at? That's not what this verse is saying. It's kind of like saying, right, it's, uh, I was trying to think of an example. It's like, my wife is a really good cook, and I could stand up here and tell you all, all the things that she can do, and then I'm like, she can do it all. And then you could be like, I wasn't aware that Sarah could run a five-minute mile. I'm like, what? Where did you? You said she can do, she can do it all. She can do everything. I'm like, no, no, no. I was using that. I was speaking like normal English. Um, I was talking about her ability to cook, right? Like, that's just how English works. And so you can't rip this out and say, what are the all things? In that example, it's my definition of my wife's culinary ability, right? Like, in this example, it's in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. What are the all? He says, I can do it all. I can have a lot. I can have a little. I can be abounding. I can be in profound need. I've learned how to do that and remain content. Remain in a place. I'll, I'll define contentment for you the way only a good old Puritan can. This is an English Puritan. This is how they wrote. I, I want to know, like, is this how they spoke to each other? But he defined Jeremiah Burroughs. Ah, yes, Jeremiah. He says, Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly choice in every condition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, 
quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly choice in every circumstance and condition. Paul's saying, I've learned how to do that, but I can only have that insofar as I am connected to the source of that. That is not produced inwardly. I am not sufficient within myself, far from it. I am only sufficient insofar as I am connected to the one who strengthens me. What he's saying is it is connectedness to Jesus. It is abiding in Jesus. It is continuing to be faithful to the promises of Jesus. It is continuing to take all of the many emotions of life and directing them, whether the rejoicing, directing them in gratitude to God or whether the pain and addressing them in lament to God. He's saying it's that connectedness. It's staying, it's being tethered to Jesus that makes this possible. That is radically different than a stoic life. It is radically more dependent. It is also radically more alive. Radically more alive than the stoic alternative. I hope that from now on, when you hear, I can do all things through Christ. Do you, have you ever seen there's a mug out? <laughs> have you ever seen this mug? It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. It's like my favorite. I almost put it up here. But... Um, <laughs> You know what? I give you permission, Jacob. So well, be that person. When someone says this, to be like, do you know the context of that verse? <laughs> because here's what I wish, right? Here's that verse properly applied. And I don't know that I've ever heard this. Maybe it's happened, but I've never heard this. I would love for an athlete to go through the most vicious defeat just at the very last minute it's taken from them. And their whole life has been building up to this. And the whole country is rooting for them. And we are, are more devastated for them than they are, but they're devastated. And they get to that press conference and they say, so how are you feeling? And that person who just went from a guaranteed gold medal to going home with absolutely nothing gets up there and says, first and foremost, I want to give all glory to God because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And I got here through the one who gave me strength, and I'm gonna get through this as hard as it is through the one who gives me strength. Because I've learned how to abound, but I've also learned how to be brought low. And this is a low moment, and he's sufficient in this place as well. So if any of you are an elite athlete, who will one day find themselves at a press conference. <laughs> the opportunity to say this, nothing would encourage your former pastor. I don't know why I'm your former pastor at that point, but <laughs> I just suppose you will have famed out of here or something. Um, but, uh, right, because there's a truth that all of us have a kind of press conference of our lives, right? And what, what's the story you're telling yourself? Do you believe yourself, right? Like, I'll say it, right? Like, most of you know my family's been through a really, really hard season. Um, with my mom's passing. We feel a little bit of that stoic thing. Like, where's the next blow coming from? I'll be honest with you. We feel that a little bit. We feel a little protective right now. And to me, like, this verse just challenged me. I don't have some answer. I, I don't know that I can say yet, like, I know this. I've learned the secret. I think God's teaching us this. I think that this is one of those times. I hate that we're not through it. I hate that we're, like, still in class on this one because it's really hard and scary and you hope you get out of it. But 
there is a reality that the thing that keeps us grounded is, no, wait, there is a God who knows what it is to suffer, who loved us enough to come to put on the life that he did. He is, he's not behind all of this in the sense of this was somehow what God wanted for us. God died so that this wouldn't keep happening forever. Do you know that, right? Like, so this nonsense, like, this is what God wanted for your mom, is to get crippling cancer and to die as quick. It's like, I'm, I'm not there. I don't know, maybe your theology is there. That's not where I'm at. I'm like, no, this is why Jesus came. This is why he wept in this world. It's because he wants an end to this, and that's what he's working toward. And what he calls us to is not stoicism. It's not for us to just sit here, and when you say, how are you doing, for me to look at you and to say, fine. Everything's sad and really hard, but I'm fine, right? What I've found, and this is scary for me because this is not my emotional makeup, is when I'm honest, I say, this is awful. It's really scary sometimes. And I really lost it over a Hamilton song last night. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I realized I hadn't listened to Hamilton since my mom died. And I heard a song that I heard completely differently this time. And I was like, this will be fun, like, the rest of my life is, is having these moments, right? I'm looking at some of you who have lived through this, right? That kind of grief. But there's, there's goodness. There's love behind the universe. Not the fates. Not randomness. Not Leviathan and behemoth. There's a good father who is taking care of us, who will take care of us. We just got to stay connected to him, and that's the fight. That's the real fight. I'll go quicker through the next two. Next paragraph. Uh, he says all that about self-sufficiency, and then I love this. Uh, go up a verse, Kathleen. He's like, <laughs> this is so Paul. He's, he's so much sometimes. But he's like, I'm good. I've learned it all. I know how to be content and all this stuff. And then he says right after uh, Philippians 4.13, he's like, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. What he's saying there is like, yeah, I'm self-sufficient, but it was still great. Like, I'm still so glad that you sent stuff. Like, I would much rather be taken care of. Like, yes, it ultimately comes down to my responsibility to stay tethered, my responsibility to stay tethered to Jesus. But like, I really needed that food you sent. The new clothes were great. Like, don't get it twisted. Like, it, it was great of you to do that. And you can hear it. He's sort of effusive in the rest of it. Like, yeah, don't hear any of this as like, well, I guess Paul is, I guess Paul's arrived at the whole contentment thing. So I guess we can send our stuff elsewhere. That's literally what he's saying here. It's like, no. Um, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Keep going. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's the state that they're in, that's Greece, ancient Greece, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only, right? He's saying, your, your service to me goes back, right? Like, there's history here between Paul and the Philippians. Even Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It's another trip that he took. Um, not that I seek the gift. Then this is where he turns it. He's almost effusive, and then he goes back to this kind of tone. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I love this. A, this whole letter is written to define for these Philippians, as we said before, the, the difference in being a true and faithful citizen of heaven versus a true and faithful citizen of Rome, right? And in the Roman culture, you give 
in order to gain status among the people who are observing you give, and especially to the people you give. You create this sort of power dynamic when you give to someone. If I give you a bunch of money, if I provide for you, if I'm there, then I have power over you. Paul says generosity as citizens of the kingdom could not be more different, right? Like, in some ways, what he's saying is like, don't get it twisted. Just because you gave to me doesn't mean that you have some weird power over me. Don't play that game. He says the most important thing about your giving is what it means about your relationship to God. So he completely takes their eyes off of his relationship with them and puts them on, this is what you're, you're giving. This is what your sacrificial generosity means in your relationship to God. And he's picking up on tons of teaching that, that would be a, a whole other sermon, if not sermon series. But he's picking up on a whole bunch of teaching that Jesus does that says, when we give sacrificially, when we give freely, when we give cheerfully in this world, there is some kind of cosmic economic dynamic that goes on where even though you're giving away in terms of earthly goods and things and finances, there is some kind of heavenly response to that that so infinitely outweighs the apparent sacrifice that you've made in the world. And it's talked about in all different kinds of ways. Jesus talks about storing up treasure in heaven. What does he mean by that? I really don't know. But it's what he says, right? What does Paul say here? He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's literally using accounting language here. He's saying, when you give in the world, there is some kind of cosmic accounting where God goes, oh, put that, put that into their heavenly account. They gave this, put that into their heavenly account. Now, hear me. We ain't no prosperity church. I'm not going to tell you, sow your seed and you'll get a, a hundred back, right? Like he's talking about divine spiritual realities here that he's saying that you can actually use the stuff of this world to increase what actually matters ultimately, right? Like where the prosperity gospel goes around and it says you can use the stuff of this world to get more of the stuff of this world. Paul says, be very careful with that. What you want is the stuff that really matters, which is the nearness of God, which is God's favor, which is God's pleasure, which is God's delight over your life. In fact, he goes on to say, look, I'm good. I have received full payment. In other words, what he's saying, what you sent me is sufficient. Like, I'll be taken care of for some amount of time and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus, that's our boy back uh, in chapter 2, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The gifts that you sent, again, do you hear how he's, he's talking about what their gift meant to God, and he's, he's really prioritizing that versus what it meant to him. He's like, look, it was great, it was good, but what it really was, if you had eyes to see, is a sacrifice, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's using Old Testament language. Where the, in the Old Testament, you would bring your sacrifice, you would bring your bull, your goat, your, your lamb or whatever, and you would sacrifice that lamb, and part of what's going on in that is literally you would burn it, and two things were going on when you burned it. You were burning it like we, well, maybe not burn meat, but grill meat, is that the idea was that you were offering it to God, that it was literally going to be sustenance for God, like you were offering him food. But just like when we grill, not only is the meat being cooked, but what's going up? Right? Like that sweet, sweet scent, right? Like it's getting a little warmer out. You get out of your car on a Saturday or whatever, and it's like... Ah, somebody's grilling, right? And like, 
my mom always used to make a joke. She'd be like, I didn't get my invitation, right? Like that was always her joke. Like, cool joke, mom. Um, <laughs> right? It, it, was a, it was also about the scent. Paul is picking up that language and he's saying, when you give sacrificially, you are ultimately giving to who? To God, right? Like, see that. Like, realize that, that whatever thing pulls on your heart to give sacrificially to, there is a sense in which you're offering that to God. Just like you would bring your bull or your goat, right, to the priest, and you give it to the priest, but the priest's role was to ultimately offer that to God. You need to see what you're sacrificing as ultimately to God. He says, because here's what it does. In some sense, it is sustenance for the mission of God in the world. Like most of the things that you'll be called to give to, at least in this church, are for the furtherance of God's purposes in this world. All those little service things. Go serve at a food bank. Give diapers to young moms in our area. We're like, yeah, you're giving it to them, but you're ultimately giving that to God. You're serving his purposes. You're coming alongside him and using the resources that were never yours to start with, by the way, for what he actually needs them for. You're giving them to God. And then here's what happens. There's an aroma that comes with that. It's like God's up there in heaven. He's like, oh, is that some faithfulness? Who's doing it? Who's doing it? Ooh, the Aviles are up today. What are they giving? Ah, that smells good, right? And it draws him close. It pleases him. It delights the heart of the Father. It somehow, some way, draws his attention. Paul's saying, wouldn't that open our hands a little bit? If we realize that every time we were sacrificial, every time we served the needs of others, it drew God's attention close. Don't give to impress other people, right? This is part of Jesus' teaching. Be careful with that nonsense. Don't give to impress me. Don't give to impress those around you. He says, what Jesus literally says, he says, then you had your reward. The smell, it didn't go up. It was captured by you. It was, it was directed where you wanted it directed. Let it go up. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's what he's saying. He's saying, let the, let the scent go all the way up into heaven because it'll draw God close. It'll delight his heart. And he'll use it in ways that'll blow your mind. And my God will supply every need of yours according to, the, <laughs> according to his riches and glory in, in Christ Jesus. He's like, you give to God sacrificially like that? And here he's not just talking about money. He's talking about time. He's talking about energy. He's talking about your life. He's talking about your parenting. He's talking about your friendships. He's talking about your work. He's talking about your work relationships. He's saying you begin to live that way and you are investing in one whose resources will never run out. He says you live for the job promotion. You live for the praise of others. It's going to run out. It's going to fail you. Those resources are only so deep. God's resources, they don't run out. Therefore, why wouldn't you invest there? He's saying God will supply your every need, right? And what he's talking about there is not earthly stuff for earthly stuff. He's talking about all the stuff that he's already talked about in Philippians. He's talking about contentment in adversity. He's talking about steadfastness in, in the midst of opposition. He's talking about divine joy and peace and anxiety like Pastor Rich preached on. He's talking about purity in an otherwise crooked world. These are the gifts of God. These are the resources of God. This is the stuff only God can give you. It's not that God outpays this world. It's that God's got stuff that only he can give. He's got currency that's only his to hand out. He's saying invest there. Last thing in this passage, I'm calling one final flex. 
a flex, by the way, for those of a different generation. Flex is something that demonstrates who you are in sort of like a subtle way. It's sort of like a, um, oh, it's like when you see some, sorry, I'm in a sports place. Um, it's Father's Day, US Open is on, so forgive me. But it's like when you watch commentary, you watch like a pregame show, and there's like those couple people sitting there with a, with a World Series, or with a World Series, with a Super Bowl ring on or something. That's a flex. That's a subtle like, you may notice that unlike Charles Barkley here, I actually have, right, that's a flex. Um, this is Paul flexing. How? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Say hi to everybody. The brothers who are with me greet you. They say hi, right, like normal stuff. All the saints greet you. All the Christians here greet you. And then here's the flex. Especially those of Caesar's household. Especially those of Caesar. Why does he say that? What's that? Yeah, he knows people in Caesar's household. Hear what he's talking about. We don't really know what he's talking about. He could be talking about family of Caesar at that time. He could be talking about the servants and slaves of Caesar. He could be talking about people who work there. Whoever it is, they are every day around the apparent center of worldly power. And they're starting to live as citizens of a very different kind, right in the midst of the center of power in this world. He's saying all this stuff that I've said, believe a different gospel. Caesar says he's got good news because at the, at the tip of his sword, he will bring world peace. I got better news because there's one who put himself under the sword in order to save you from eternal separation and make you eternally safe. He's saying, uh, they say that honor is what life is all about. I say flip it on its head. Humbling yourself, serving others is when you actually fully come alive. They say invest in other people in order to step on them and put them at, at your will. No, give graciously, give freely, give wildly, give privately in order that God might delight in what you, even if the world never sees what you've given. He's saying, yeah, there's people living that out under Caesar's nose right now actively. I got receipts. I got names I could give you. The Roman Empire fell, right? How many of you are Romans? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I won't ask how many of you are Christians. I don't, I don't want to, but most hands in this room go up, right? Which citizenship had more lasting value in this world? In spite of all evidence to the contrary at that time, in spite of all the opposition, you're talking about a church of probably 30, 40 people, smaller community than this. Here we are. One of what? Hundreds of thousands, millions of communities like these all over the face of the earth. There's people worshiping Jesus in Cambodia right now. There's people worshiping Jesus Pastor Minoj and Bean are with them right now in India, all over India. There's people worshiping Jesus on every single continent. I bet there's someone this morning singing some Chris Tomlin on Antarctica, right? Like, that's, how extraordinary is that? It's one final flex is Paul's hope to say, look, this gospel, this good news is not going away. It's not going away. In spite of all that will oppose it, 
this gospel will advance and will be the only thing that will matter in the long run about the Roman Empire, and it'll be the only thing that matters about your story. And so he ends the whole letter by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's where he began. His opening words are grace to you. His closing words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's all grace. You don't deserve any of this. We don't get caught up in this story because God is impressed with us and needs us to speed along his narrative. He doesn't need any one of us, and yet he chooses us. That's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so many of us live our whole lives believing that because we deserve what this world has thrown at us, because of what we've done, we only deserve so much. The good news, the great news, the spectacular news, the news that brought people to life 2,000 years ago and still doing it now, is that there is a God, the creator of the universe, says nonsense. You're worth it, not because of your self-sufficiency. You're worth it because I can come and give you strength that you don't have. And I put my very life on the line to make that possible. That's how much I love you. That's grace. And Paul says, any single person or any community that begins to depart from the reality that Christianity is grace at its beginning and it's grace at the end has gone off track. And so we end where Paul wants us to end and then begin again and then end in the same place and begin again, which is this is all grace. It's a gift. And so I read over you the beating heart of this letter that defines that grace. It says, this is Jesus. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's good news. That's good news. We come to this